Welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time. My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Mike Trap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Uh, each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors in the region. This week, our guest uh, will be Jit Saxena. For those of you who don't know Jit, he's, he's one of Boston's most celebrated and successful entrepreneurs, probably best known as the chairman and CEO of Natiza, uh, which was a company he founded in 2001. Uh, Natiza pioneered the development of data warehouse appliances and went public uh, in March of 2007 and was eventually acquired by IBM in uh, 2009. Uh, before Natiza, JIT founded a company called Applix, which was a software company in the decision support software business. Uh, they pioneered the development of decision support systems on Unix workstations, went public in 94, and were acquired by Cognos uh, in the year 2003. He is a passionate uh, entrepreneur and passionate about helping other entrepreneurs, has served lots of CEOs, been on the boards of companies like Actifio, like Demandware, Applause, Kazina, Clear Sky Data, Evergage, and others. Uh, really an incredible guy and someone I've had the privilege of working closely with on the Actifio board for uh, several years now. As always, for the second part of our podcast, we're going to take 15 minutes to focus on an individual area of interest for our guest. And Jay wanted to talk about being a board member, um, talk generally about boards for startups, what it takes to be a good one, and uh, you know how to use a board, You know some advice for folks who are perhaps participating in their first board experience. And uh, we really had a great conversation about it from someone who, uh, again, I have huge respect for as both an entrepreneur and a board member. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups. Backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute. To help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. All right, so um, I had an incredible conversation with Jit over lunch at Actifio's world headquarters in Waltham. Uh, just a fascinating guy, and um, you know, getting to know him on a more personal level, uh, I would say the thing that defines him is really a, a strength of will. It's a contrarian nature that is a thread that uh, weaves its way all the way from his boyhood to you know his current role and and his thoughts on board members. So um, anyway, here's our conversation about Jit and his life, and uh, I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. You know, you're, you're someone that is incredibly high profile in the community, um, having been a successful entrepreneur yourself and now as an investor and board member. Where were you born? I was born in India and uh, did most of my schooling in India. Uh, I come from a middle class family of doctors primarily. My father was a doctor and uh, many of my older brothers became doctors. How many siblings uh, in your family? So we had, I had three older brothers. I was the youngest. My father's view was that uh, there was only one decent profession in the world, and that was medicine. Whether you made money or in that or not was not his primary goal. Uh, he thought the service aspect of medicine 
was very important. Right. And, uh, and that you really made a difference in the lives of your patients. And that to him was, was great. And so uh, his advice to, or direction, I would, I would say direction, uh, to me was uh, you should also try to become a doctor. Right. All three of your brothers had done that. Two of my older brothers have done that, yeah. So the pressure must have been awesome. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, it was sort of subtle, but uh, in one-on-one discussions with my father, it was very direct. Right. uh, That this is the only decent profession. So why did you choose otherwise? At what point do you have to decide that in the Indian school system that you're going to go pre-med or do something else? Yeah, so uh, in those days... uh, Unless you are from a business family, if you were if you were from a regular middle class family, uh, there were only really two options if you wanted to make a decent living. Uh, one was to of course become a doctor, and the other one was to become an engineer. That way, you were assured of having a job at least. And uh, so, most of the people of my age group and all that chose one or the other. I frankly didn't like either of those two options, but I think the common sense would have told me that uh, I should choose one of those two, and uh, I definitely did not want to be a doctor because uh, I just didn't have a sort of the personality for that, uh, and just because everybody else in the family was thinking that way, maybe I wanted to be somebody different. Right. When did you come to the U.S.? So I came here in 1966, which is now about 50 years ago. Exactly 50 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, and we are celebrating that in my family because this is a great place. In spite of some of its faults, it's probably the best country in the world. I certainly believe it is. Came here to go to graduate school. I had finished my engineering from IIT in Mumbai. I applied to a few schools in the U.S., my primary goal was to see if some school would admit me and then provide me some sort of a financial assistance so I can afford to come here. Fortunately, uh, I was able to secure a commitment to provide me with financial assistance at Michigan State. Right. And uh, I came to East Lansing, Michigan. Was that a culture shock, being in a Big Ten school? That's yeah, <laughs> it was. It was uh, mostly on the positive side. And, you know, one of the things that I really enjoyed was the campus environment at Michigan State. It was a huge campus. It was a pretty big school, but a little bit away from main cities like Detroit and so on. So it was a, you could have a life of your own on the campus. And the second thing was, which I did not know at that point, was that uh, Michigan State had a great sports culture. Even though I didn't understand American football, I learned everything about football like within the first two weeks. So you get your master's in engineering, and then what did you do after school? My first real job was uh, on the East Coast at Honeywell. They were, at that time, thinking about entering the mini-computer world. In those days, there were only mainframe companies like IBM, Burroughs, NCR, and Honeywell. And there were some emerging mini-computer companies like Digital, for sure, and then companies like Data General. And Honeywell had no presence in the mini-computer market, they had opened a facility in Framingham uh, where they wanted to design a new 
a family of mini computers. We call it private cloud now, not mainframe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Uh, it's totally different. That's right. Um, <clears throat> you go there, and how did you, was that a long stint for you uh, in the engineering side of Honeywell? Or well, you know, even though I had a very interesting job at Honeywell, my objective was really to longer term get away from engineering for two reasons. First of all, I thought that to be the best engineer. You have to be really, really good. And I wanted to be at the top of the engineering team. Uh, just being part of the team was interesting, but uh, not very satisfying. And I knew that for me to be the top engineer, I'll have to work two times or three times as hard as some of the engineers to whom uh, software came naturally. And so, I, yes, I could compete with them, but then I was spending all my time uh, at work. And for a while, it was great. But I didn't see that as going on for the rest of my life. So I said I should learn something about business. And so I joined an MBA program at Boston University. So during the day, I would uh, work at Honeywell. And in the evening, I would uh, pursue my business degree. You know, a lot of engineers struggle with the question of whether to go to business school. And how do you counsel engineers about this, making that choice for themselves? Yeah, so uh, my view in general on education is that uh, education of any kind is always very, very helpful. Uh, there is no downside to learning anything new. But there is sometimes an expectation that just because you get an MBA or some other degree, that that naturally gives you a passage to something new. That's not the case. It took me a while to learn that. I thought just because I would get an MBA, suddenly all the business people would come running to me and say, I'll give you a job in sales or marketing and so on. And that never happens. So once I finished my MBA, and a fellow engineer at that time, uh, who was a friend of mine, had just joined an emerging mini computer company called Data General, and he used to call me and says, Jit, you ought to come here because this is really exciting and fast growing as opposed to Honeywell, which was slow moving and so on. And he says, you would love it here. And, uh, and I said, sure, yeah, I, I, I like that. Uh, but they will have to give me a job in sales or marketing. I don't want to come there and work in software development. So he said, okay, uh, well, I'll, I'll have you talk to our marketing and sales people. And so I, I did talk to some of them, and they they confirmed my uh, thinking, which was uh, just because I have an MBA, they would not give me a job in marketing or sales. Uh, they would be happy to give me a job in, in engineering, but uh, then I'll have to sort of convince some people there that I could actually go out in the field and uh, carry the bag, as they used to call it. Uh, so... Uh, so I said, okay, in that case, I'm not coming. But one of the co-founders at Data General who used to run their sales and marketing maybe saw something and he said, okay, Jed, I'll do the next best thing. I will not have you carry the bag, but you can help the people who are carrying the bag by becoming a systems engineer. And then after a while, if we decide that you know what you're doing, maybe we'll give you certain accounts and then you can make that switch in your career. So I said, oh, that's great. So I, I left Honeywell, and I joined Data General as a systems engineer, and that was great. The environment within Data General was very exciting. And some people didn't like it, but I loved it because uh, it was a free-for-all. 
Yeah, you could do whatever you wanted to do, and as long as you knew something about what you were doing, they were very happy with it. And the company was growing very fast. So, uh, in a fast-growing company, uh, there's always a shortage of talented people, and uh, so anytime you did something good, it would be very visible to the management, and they want they wanted to give you more responsibility. So. Uh, I remember even within just eight months of being a systems engineer, they said, well, I think you should run systems engineering for the whole place. And we have, we have five or six engineers. Why don't you start managing them? And, and I said, oh, sure. So uh, that was pretty exciting. And then a year after that, they said, well, we don't have a marketing group here. We are starting a marketing group. And I didn't know what that meant, but I liked the idea. And uh, so uh, I said, uh, I moved back to the home office from the field and started their software marketing group. And then I realized that the culture in the company was all about hardware and building machines. And software was a necessity, but only a necessity. It was not a business in itself. But to me, I was learning a lot. And uh, I didn't care about the fact that nobody else in the company worried about it, but that was fine. But then they brought in a new VP of software development who came from Hewlett Packard, great gentleman named Bill Foster. And uh, he talked to me about coming in and maybe uh, helping, uh, helping him with some product management issues. And that was fine. And then one thing led to the other, and I was running a small group of people in software development because they needed help. And I think it was maybe just uh, two years after that that I was running all of software development uh, in Massachusetts for Data General, which was a big group in those days. So that was that was fun. That is the time that Tracy Kidder was writing the Soul of a New Machine. And his focus was mostly on the hardware side uh, and some of the microcode stuff, but primarily hardware. And I think his, I remember talking to him and his thinking was that if he also included software in that book, it will become very complex because as it is, the subject was a very complex subject uh, for the general audience and to try to include hardware and software and all that would make it even more complex. So how long was your stint at uh, Data General? I was managing most of the software development group in those days, had many hundreds of people in it. The margins in the mini computer business was great. Companies were making a lot of money. And the issues were primarily whether you could hire people fast enough. And that was very exciting. But uh, I had a view that this proprietary systems and proprietary software would give way in the future to open systems and open software. And it it would create a, a software industry uh, in its own right. And that will be exciting. And uh, so I wanted my CEO to fund some of those activities. He was a pretty smart guy, but he didn't agree with me that software on its own could become an industry. Because in those days, as I remember, they were not companies like Microsoft, Lotus, and all that didn't exist. So he discouraged me from the idea of uh, funding open systems-based software like software for uh, open operating systems such as Unix and so on. And I talked to him two or three times, and uh, every time he said he would not support it. So uh, 
I said, okay, in that case, I will go out on my own and start a company to build software for open systems. And we had a uh, sort of parting of ways. He told me that uh, certainly I'm free to go and do something on my own, but if I hired too many people from this company, that would not be good for me. And uh, right. So we sort of had a gentleman's agreement that I would not hire too many people. Uh, in fact, I think we might even have agreed that I'll only hire two or three. And I didn't know who I would hire, and I had not thought about all that. All I knew was that I wanted to build software for open systems and that software would become a major industry uh, in the future. So those were some of the thoughts with which I left and started my career as an entrepreneur. You know, there's a um, a common thread of independent-mindedness, right? You decide, you know, everybody's yeah. a doctor, you don't want to be a doctor. You know, yeah. you, come, you know, you come to the U.S., you, you, you know, decide that uh, you want to go from engineering into sales. Like, there, it seems like that's a common thread here. Yeah, I, I, I would say that I am, uh, now that I think about it, I'm generally a contrarian. So uh, every time I look at something, even when things are going well, I tend to think about what's wrong with this picture rather than uh, let's just enjoy what's happening. Right. You feel like that's served you well. Now, of course, I have ways of rationalizing all that. But And my rationalization is that uh, if you are going in the same way that everybody else is going, you have to be that much better than everybody else. If you are going in the other way, and if, if you happen to be right, you don't have to be that good. Right. Okay. Right. So that has has been my way of thinking. Right. Right. That's, that's really the essence of business strategy, right? Yeah, to do yeah. something the other guy isn't doing. Right. As opposed to trying to do what he's doing better. That's right. Got it. So so that starts you down an entrepreneurial path. What was that like in the early going? You're, you know, you, you had to learn a whole new set of skills. I'm sure some of the business school stuff helped. Obviously, the software engineering yeah. did. But, like, what was the early days like for, you know, Jet, Jet Sexina as a, as a uh, fresh-faced entrepreneur? I think the uh, initial part went very smoothly for me. I was fortunate that I met a an investor who uh, was the right investor for me. Uh, what, I, what I mean by that is it was somebody who really believed in uh, entrepreneurs and, uh, and letting them do their thing, make their own mistakes, and, and learn from that, but take ownership uh, on all issues of things that were that they were doing. And ownership is a pretty interesting concept. Uh, of course, everybody wants to take ownership, but they don't uh, want to take ownership for all the things that go wrong. Right. And, uh, and that is something I, I learned, and, and I have to give credit to this investor uh, of mine who, who would always say, okay, you created this problem, you go fix it. And, and that, was, that was a big uh, learning experience for me. And uh, I think the, the hard lesson in my first company, which I still carry to this day, was uh, we thought we were very smart and that we understood technology. We understood how to not only make a product, but how to convince people to use the product and to market it. And the mistake I think we made in the early days was to just talk to people who were similar to what we were. 
smart, technology-oriented people, as opposed to talking to the market in general, trying to really understand who our customer is and what it is that they are looking for. So that was that was a problem. And I'll give you an example. So we had determined that for us to write the kind of software we wanted to write, we would need these very powerful workstations that had... Uh, you know, very high-resolution graphic displays that were fully networked, uh, that had lots of memory, and so on. And that we wanted to design the next level of powerful graphics-oriented collaboration software. But the end users were really not there. They were looking for some basic capabilities that were being provided by standalone PCs, which did not have the graphics capabilities, that did not have the networking, that did not even have enough memory to write decent software. And companies such as Lotus and WordPerfect and all that were meeting that need. And we thought end users didn't know uh, what they really wanted. What they really wanted right. was the kind of stuff that we were doing. Sure, Ken Olson syndrome. And, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and we would talk to people at, for example, at Digital and Data General and so on, the friends of ours, and they said the same thing. Yeah. Uh, in fact, one of my friends, uh, or some, not friends, but somebody I knew very well, a great engineer, was writing the spreadsheet for uh, Lotus, uh, Jonathan Sachs. And whenever I would see him, which was not very often, he would complain how much little memory the machine had, and he had to write code in assembly language and so on. So we thought we were the right, we were doing the right things, and uh, we felt very good uh, about what we were doing, even though the market was going the other way. Right. And companies such as Lotus and WordPerfect and DBase were already beginning to have good market traction. And even more important than the market traction was there was a channel that was emerging that was selling their software. And uh, I had to sell my software using direct sales teams and so on. So pretty soon it became clear to me that the big opportunity that I saw which was to become the dominant software company in the world, probably not there, that companies such as Microsoft and Lotus and so on had already become pretty significant and had the mind share and a new entrant such as ourselves would only have a niche market and that will be a Unix marketplace. And that was a hard realization and uh, a big lesson to really understand or try to understand who your customer is. Uh, uh, we thought our customers were OEMs such as digital and data general and all that, uh, but they were just a channel. The customers was the end users and end users were buying something different. Right. Once that lesson became very clear, we had to then think about, okay, what is, what is happening to the Unix workstation marketplace and let's focus on those customers. And they were being used in uh, te some telecom applications, some financial trading applications, and some government applications. And so we spent some time trying to understand those environments and then develop software just for those applications. It sounds pretty easy that it was an easy transition, but it was very difficult to make that transition. Uh, but when we did that, we found ourselves to be in a smaller market, but the only player in that small market. So we had no competition, really, to speak of. And we could charge decent prices. We still had to use direct sales force to sell our product. But 
the direct sales force could be productive because we were the only game in town in financial trading applications, in some of the telecom applications, in some of the federal government applications where Unix workstations were being used. So we became very profitable, quite successful, and we were able to do a public offering. The stock did very well for many years till Microsoft and the anti-operating system-based devices became more common. So yeah, that was that was a great run after the, at that point, but it was a big pivot from our original thinking. Right, always painful, and yeah. and again a pivot driven outside in. That's right, from an insight about the nature of the customer. Yes, you know everybody that I talk to, even now, for example, says they are very focused on customers and so on, and and they probably mean that, uh, but a subtle point that gets lost is do you really know your customer okay uh, and and that's a very difficult question and many companies especially technology companies still really don't know and still don't spend enough time understanding that customer and uh, what their needs are not only today but they are going to be in the near future how they buy it, what are the reasons for buying, how do they justify buying that product within their own organizations, and so on. You know, we sit in the home office sometimes thinking we know them, but we don't. So that was a big lesson for me, and that helped me down the road, uh, if not in my previous company, but uh, it certainly helped shape my thinking quite a bit. Right. So, um, you know, people in Boston know no, Natiza, you're certainly well known for it. For for younger entrepreneurs, explain just briefly what they did, and maybe tell us a little bit a story about uh, about um, you know that that was that was quite a ride. Um, yeah, yeah. So uh, so after I uh, I left Applix, my first company, and I was there for 16 years, uh, so that was a very long time, and. Uh, I learned a lot uh, through the ups and downs of that uh, experience, and uh, I think that was a great that was that was a great experience because sometimes when everything goes right, you tend to think that you are that sm- that much smarter than everybody else, and that you cannot do anything wrong, uh, and you really don't learn anything when things are going right. You only learn them. And at least in my opinion, when things don't go your way. Uh, And if you are intellectually honest, that's when you really get to learn not only about things, but about yourself as to what kind of a person you are when you you face the adversity. And so I, I, I don't wish on everybody that they should go through the adversities just to learn, but uh, having gone through some of that, uh, and it all ended nicely for me, but I, I do I do believe that those downs more than the ups were uh, really important, and uh, and I really learned a lot. So coming back to Natiza, things in Natiza uh, really worked pretty well, and so let me start out from the beginning. Uh, the uh, I started Natiza with a uh, co-founder who had the basic idea of 
building high-performance database machines. And even though it was an old idea, as I thought about it, I, I, the thing I liked about it is that it was different. The approach was different. Everybody had, by this time was only developing software. In fact, hardware had become a dirty word. And uh, in fact, I remember when I told my investor friend that I was planning to build a hardware software company, his response was, why do you want to do hardware? This is the same gentleman who 16 years ago had told me, why do, you, why do I want to do a software? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, I liked that idea. What I didn't like about uh, my co-founder's initial idea was that his focus in terms of market was a little different than uh, what I would have liked. He, his view was that we could build a high-performance database machine and we could sell it to compete with companies like IBM and Oracle in the transaction processing business critical markets. And I, I was very much opposed to that. Uh, I felt that uh, for a young company, uh, it'll be difficult to go after the mission critical applications and, and try to convince those customers that they should uh, move away from their uh, mission critical applications onto this new platform. Uh, I, I thought it could be done, but it will take a long, long time to convince them to do it. So I wanted us to change the orientation, both the architecture of the product, to go after more of what is now viewed as a uh, analytics market. Uh, I, I felt that... Uh, that was an emerging market where very few companies uh, had a good solution. Uh, if we could provide a machine that could allow people to analyze huge amounts of data very, very rapidly, then uh, that could become a very powerful force in the market. And it was even though it was not very evident at that time, to me it was becoming clearer, this is, nine, this is the year 2000, it was, so 16 years ago, it was becoming clearer that the growth in data of all kinds, relevant data of all kinds, was just beginning to take off. Uh, and that in a fully connected world, or a fully wireless world, there will be a tremendous opportunity to collect data about everything that affects your life, affects your business, and so on. And that the future leaders would be companies that could become very good at establishing a data culture and a, and a data-based culture. By that I mean uh, companies that could make decisions uh, based on detailed data as opposed to just based on guts. And, uh, and these companies, uh, whether it's in the customer environment or in a supply chain environment or even in an R&D environment, would be that much more successful if their decision-making was based on detailed analysis of all kinds of data. So that, so that 
gave me the confidence to say there will be a emerging analytics market and if you could provide a machine that would analyze that would allow people to analyze huge amounts of data then that could become a very successful enterprise now this was year 2000 and uh, most of the companies on the east coast that were doing database technology had either given up or their database operations had moved to the west coast and uh, microsoft with sql server and oracle with their own product and uh, all those companies had recruited most of the talent they had moved to the west coast but i thought i didn't necessarily want to use people who are database technology experts i wanted to just use people that were just very smart software engineers who would look at this issue from a different perspective and that people who are already experts in databases would tend to do the more same things maybe a little bit better now i thought people would who did not have that orientation could create a little bit more creative approach to database processing and that was that was a little bit of a problem because the conventional thinking was jit you know all the database gurus so called have moved to the west coast they're either working for microsoft or oracle or other other companies so uh, i had to first of all convince myself that that was not a problem and then have to convince some of my investors uh, that that was not a problem that and uh, uh and they either agreed or, or or sort of reconciled to the idea let this guy do it uh and uh, and we were able to get people uh, great software engineers and they did come up with schemes that were much more creative much more different uh than schemes used at other companies and therefore able to come up with a product that was two to three orders of magnitude faster than what was being done at that time right uh, so so the lesson there is that sometimes you need to take a an approach uh, and and with a set of people that have a different way of thinking about things uh, not the conventional way uh, it certainly worked in in this in case of netiza uh, and we were able to build a product uh, that the rest of the industry uh, found amazing at that time netiza went public in july of 2007 and came out at $12 per share Uh, in September of 2010, it was acquired by IBM for $27 per share, netting its investors $1.7 billion. So, quite a guy, really a remarkable career, um, starting with uh, zagging while others chose to zig. Uh, if there's a common thread through his experience, that's certainly what I took away. Uh, a lot of it is just having that strength of character to maybe uh, move in a di- different direction than uh, than than most people would. Um, the next part of our conversation was really about the nature of of startup boards, what it takes to 
build a good board, the culture of good boards, what it takes to be a good board member. We spent about 15 minutes uh, in that discussion, and um, I really enjoyed it. So uh, here are the highlights of my discussion with JIT on uh, what it takes to uh, be a great board member. As you know, I spend a significant amount of my time now at this stage in my life on several boards. And most of the boards that I'm on are companies that are early stage companies. By early stage, I mean they are between 10 to $100 million in revenues. Some are even less than that. And they are venture funded. Uh, there was only one company uh, that I was on the board of, and I recently got off of that because of the merger, and they were a public company. So that was my only public board. All the other ones are private, and I love it. The way I look at my role as a board member is to see if there's any way I can help the company, the CEO, and the senior management team. I think the role of a board member is primarily an advisory role, but the advisory roles are not very productive unless there's a level of trust between the CEO and the board member or the senior leadership team and the board member. So you have to have a level of trust. Otherwise, the board role is primarily a formality and uh, I would not be part of those kinds of situations. It's it's a difficult balance though, right? Because you you want to have a personal relationship and yet a lot of your value add is through your objectivity. You know, right. there are hard decisions to make on a board. Yes. Are those things in conflict for you? How do you reconcile that? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question. I and I uh, but I have a very simple approach to that issue which is uh, trust and friendship should not get in the way of objectivity. And I know it's difficult sometimes, but the reason I'm at, on a board is to help the CEO and the senior leadership team become better. And I think when I say become better, not that I have the answer to that issue, but by a question and answer or a sort of an open-ended discussion kind of situations where you are intellectually honest about what are the issues and what are the opportunities. And in that setting, there is no conflict between trust, friendship, and the objectivity. So uh, my focus at the board is exactly on two issues, which is uh, first is the leadership team, and second is the strategy. And yes, sometimes I would get into the details of something because to understand the strategy, sometimes you have to get into the details. But to me, the details are not very interesting. Uh, to me, the uh, as a board member, my only contribution is to see what is the senior, senior leadership thinking. Because they are the people that are thinking about these issues seven by 24. I'm only there once in two months or six weeks or once a month at the most. So I don't have 
as much knowledge of that business as these people do. And sometimes the only issue some of these people have, assuming they're all decent people and smart people, the only issues where I have to help them out is they can be too close to the problem. And, uh, and that's the advantage that a board member has is that they are coming at it from a different time frame and they are not that close to the issues. Maybe they are not that, that close to the people. But I don't believe that a same solution applies everywhere. Every company has a unique culture, a unique strengths, unique weaknesses, if you want to call them that. And so the approaches need to be unique to that company, unique to be unique to the strengths of the CEO, strengths of the leadership team. You cannot apply the same formula to everything. And and that's where I believe a lot of the boards fail or don't do a good job, where they say just because something worked at some other company, that it will work here as well. Right. Uh, that is the farthest thing to truth. And so you have to learn the people part of it, people part of uh, the management team uh, and the CEO. Uh, you, have to, you have to learn that. So if you don't know that already, you have to learn that. And, and then try to help that situation uh, in any way you can. So for example, I typically don't like the, the general board meetings, and this is true even at my, some of my own boards, where you just go through a basic agenda and everybody comes in and talks about their accomplishments and their PowerPoints, and all that is good. I would rather go to a board meeting and then have a session with the CEO and then maybe a separate session with the senior management team where they say, Jith, these are my issues. This is what keeps me up. This is what I'm struggling with. Can you help me? Okay. Can we talk about it? I find that more productive. Now, in many cases, that happens one-on-one -on -one with the CEO and a typical board member. Uh, but I think we should be able to have a much more open version of that. Uh, and, and that will make the board meetings more productive. But I know there are some issues. Some people have a hard time discussing some of those issues in an open setting and, and being very transparent on some of those issues. But that's what I try to encourage people to do. Uh, it's not easy to do, but I think if they can get to that point where they are able to come to a meeting and say, this is what they accomplished and these are my open issues and this is what I'm concerned about and this is where I need help, I think that would make for a much more meaningful board discussion. We are all together. Uh, so let's talk openly about these issues and see who can help where. Uh, and that's what I try to do, try to create that environment. Sometimes I will take a devil's advocate position. Uh, I do that mostly to uh, start a discussion, uh, not because I have the answer or I have the, uh, the right approach, but to be able to talk about it. And uh, I also, you know, sort of going back to my sort of contrarian approach, uh, when things are going very well for a company, I tend to take the sort of the position of what can go wrong here, okay, and to work on those issues as opposed to just sitting there and congratulating ourselves. There is place for that, 
and there's place for celebration and congratulations and all that. But there's also a place for saying, okay, these are the things we need to do better and uh, and let's openly talk about that. Uh, so my contribution, if any, uh, the, in these board meetings is to sort of try to create that kind of an environment. I've had limited success in many situations, but uh, I certainly have had a very good relationship with all my CEOs, I think. I think uh, I've had a very trusting relationship. And if that was not the case, I would not be on the board. So that's great advice for a CEO trying to get more leverage out of a board. Yes. You know, what about on the other side? Let's say you encounter someone who is about to step onto a, a board as an independent board member, perhaps, or even as an investor. You know, what's your best advice to a new board member about how they can really um, have a meaningful impact. I always encourage the CEO to, whenever they bring on a new board member, to tell them the good news, but also to familiarize them with the culture of the company, uh, with the senior leadership team, who's good at what, with the issues that everybody's facing, with the issues that the CEO is facing. Okay, So they should not come into a first board meeting not knowing all that. That should happen before they ever come to the first board meeting, that they are on the same level as the CEO is in terms of the basic understanding of the major strategic issues. I think that will be a good start for a new board member. The other thing that every board member has to be very careful about is the tendency to get into the weeds and forgetting about the big picture, which is, I know many board members, whenever the VP of sales comes in, they have a tendency to dig through the pipeline and the every deal and, and so on. Some of that is necessary just to educate yourself. And that's the way I look at it. I want to educate myself. I don't want to question this, the VP of sales. Because if he's the wrong VP of sales, we should get somebody else. Yeah. Okay. But we need to help him out uh, in any way we can uh, through our own network or, uh, or whatever else we can bring, have him talk to some people that we think are great people, some people that he can hire or use as consultants and so on. But we don't do that in many cases. We, we dig through the pipeline as if somehow we are going to come up with the right answer. Right. Okay. Uh, and I'll tell you this. Many times, we would hardly have any discussion on the product side. Right. Okay. The VP of product comes in, gives the presentation, we, we say good things, and he goes. Okay. Uh, he or she. And, and that's not very helpful. And sometimes the situation might be that the product is the real issue. Not in the, in the sense that it's a bad product, but somehow the connection between the product and the applications is not quite there. Right. Okay, And sometimes the tendency is to just say, okay, it's a sales issue, as opposed to a positioning issue or as opposed to a product issue. And I've seen many, many situations that take a wrong approach on those kind of issues. So the board member has to be uh, sensitive to that and not be afraid to ask questions. Uh, just because... He or she may not be a technical person, but 
they should ask the questions of, you know, uh, how is the product being used? What is the discussion? Why is it taking so many support people to support this product? Why is it taking so many sales calls to uh, convince the people to use it and so on? Right. And I think that's where those board members, I think, can be very helpful. Uh, so, again, going back is trust, building the trust with the management team and the CEO, focusing on the strategic issues rather than the details of some tactical problems, always taking a view of how can I help rather than I'm here to second-guess you or, or uh, criticize you. How can I help? Uh, and that's a two-way street. Uh, the team and the CEO has to say, this is where I need help. And uh, so, again, the issue is on both sides. Everybody should feel that they are on the same team, that they are here to uh, build a bigger business, uh, better business, uh, uh, business that can create value for everybody. An enlightening uh, conversation with the great Jit Saxena. For me, there's always that struggle of trying to maintain close working relationships at the board level, uh, maintaining a high level of transparency, and, and really it comes down to trust. It comes down to people. Always great to hear that from someone of JIT's uh, level of accomplishment. That really is about relationships. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio. Actifio virtualizes data the way a hypervisor virtualizes compute to help customers enable the hybrid cloud, build higher quality applications faster, and improve business resiliency and availability. Actifio, radically simple. Thanks for sticking around for this conversation and uh, look forward to talking to you next week on How Hard Can It Be.